Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. I'm Rob Fay in Oregon, and usually we're joined by Mr. Roman Sivkin in New York, uh, but he is under the weather. And uh, luckily, though, we do have a guest. I think I mentioned on the podcast uh, last time when we talked about Lampedusa that we would be joined by the South African writer uh, Heston Hoffman. And that is true. He is here. But, um, you know, as I thought about that, Heston, I realized that you're actually an American writer of South African uh, descent. Is that... Is that uh, yeah, that's true. I think that that works for me. <laughs> and, and certainly uh, an auspicious time to have become uh, a U.S. citizen. But, you know, I guess, you know, ti- timing is everything, they say. Um, but we're really uh, pleased to have Heston here. And, and Heston also um, uh, lives in Portland, and um, which is kind of fitting because today we're going to be talking about Ursula K. Le Guin, who... Uh, died actually uh, here in uh, Portland in January. So she was an institution here, uh, I think, for like 50 years or something like that. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, Heston and I had talked a while back about about books, and we we got around to the subject of um, science fiction writers. And I think Roman had handed me a book by the Russian writer... um, Help me with the pronunciation. Is it is it Stugartsky Brothers? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and that was um, which which one was that? Uh, Doom City, I believe. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and I figured, I, I I said, you know, I maybe Heston will know about it. And you said, yes, I know of these writers, and I and I told Roman, I said, I can't imagine another person uh, that I could think of who would know. Uh, these Russian brother science fiction writers. So I thought we got to have him on the show at some point. So that's, that's the genesis of um, Heston joining us today. Um, so we're looking at um, Ursula's book, The Left Hand of Darkness. So it's a novel that was published in 1969. And um, Ursula herself was born in 1925 in Berkeley, California. And I believe in the 50s after she married um, she ended up in Portland. I think her husband had a, a, a university gig of some kind. Um, and so this particular book, um, although she had, she had a reputation uh, well before the publication of this book, um, I think it won um, all the science fiction awards that one can, can, can win, the Nebula Award as well as the Hugo Award, which were kind of like the, I don't know, the Creme de la creme. Yeah, the, the <laughs> National Book Award kind of things for science fiction. So um, we're going to dive into this book, but I, I think one question I want to throw to you, Heston, and I think it involves this segmentation of science fiction, um, the fact that literary people, people who read Henry James and, and uh, Ernest Hemingway or contemporary little no- literary novels, and that includes myself, might feel... I don't know, science fiction, it's not for me. It's, it's maybe adolescent, right? This might be a, a stereotype. So, you know, Roman and I have talked about this. Roman is not in that camp. He read science fiction all throughout his teenage years. And I can remember uh, encountering him in bookstores in Harvard Square, and he'd always be in the science fiction um, you know, aisle looking at Philip Jose Farmer and Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov. So... Help readers who are saying, you know, I'm not interested. What is it about science fiction that 
we shouldn't be afraid of or that we should embrace? Yeah, so, so I honestly didn't grow up reading science fiction. I think this is actually such an important book to me because it is the first real science fiction novel I read, I think. And I read it amongst literary novels, right? Like, you know, I read it in college for the first time at the same time, you know, as maybe The Wasteland or, you know, I was, we were studying a lot of modernist literature and I think this is part of a postmodern literature course. So I approached it in the context of it being literature, right? Like not necessarily, I didn't really make that distinction between sort of science fiction and like sort of genre fiction and, and literary fiction at the time. So it was it was the presentation that made it, oh, this is just another great book yeah. that I should know. Yeah, and I, but I, th- I do think it started a, a great love of science fiction with me because ever since reading this novel, I've read, you know, hundreds of science fiction novels. So, and I read maybe three or four a year at least. Um, so yeah, I guess for me that, that sort of, um, I don't know, that, that whole separation between literature and science fiction um, wasn't that pronounced. And in the introduction to the book, um, you know, uh, Ursula kind of takes on some of this and, and she says um, that, you know, some people have this idea that it's, it's sort of escapist, you know. And then she also, um, she says that, um, uh, you know, uh, again, addressing criticism, she says, you know, she, she thinks of it as a kind of thought experiment. And she says, um, really what science fiction tries to do is describe reality uh, to describe the present world. Um, and so help me out a bit with that as well. So what, why is it necessary to extrapolate, you know, uh, fantastical worlds um, to invent uh, mythologies, universes, etc. I mean, is it is it that human beings are so um, stubborn and oblique that they can't just simply get a presentation of um, the real world as is? Well, I I look at it as a different approach, right? So um, if you're using if you're writing in in science fiction or in speculative uh, literature, you can approach you can approach problems in a way that you can't approach through sort of more, you know, realist literature, right? So, I mean, she, you know, if you're writing speculative fiction, you can create a race of, you know, ambisexual humans. <laughs> and you can approach gender from from a, from an angle that you wouldn't be able to do if you were just dealing with sort of normal, you know, human characters. Yeah, but, but one of the things that I, I you know, I, I butt my head up against it in this book is, to invent these worlds, to invent other cosmologies, you have to have this uh, ethnographic nomenclature. You have to invent all these, you know, weird names, and 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 I find that I find that it gets in the way a little bit. The way that um, people who say, "Oh, I don't like foreign films because I don't like reading subtitles," mm-hmm. so you know, h- how do you react to? Um, you know, one of the nation states in this novel is Or Orgorian. Yes. Th- there's Carhide and Orgorian, and it's the planet of Gethin. Yeah. Um, and it's ruled, one of the nation states is ruled by uh, King Agraven. And it goes on and on and on. And yeah. so I had to write these down. <laughs> so 
that doesn't yeah. that doesn't get in the way for you, or does it actually um, add to the the verisimilitude? Uh, yeah, you know? I think it adds to it for me, and and in a way. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I guess it's never bothered me that much. Really? Okay. <laughs> I and, and I, you know, I I think that some literary folks who listen, I, I you know, tweet me if if that's the case. I feel like I wonder if that gets in the way for you a little bit. Yeah. But by the same token, if you know the characters were named, you know, Bob Smith and you know John sure. Flaherty, maybe that wouldn't work either. Yeah, I think that there would be a big a break there. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of it as well might be that I did grow up reading a lot of fantasy literature, right? So, like, I never really approached science fiction, but fantasy, I, you know, I was sort of steeped in the Lord of the Rings and, you know, all of these sort of so, fantastical worlds. And that's a good point. So help us break that down for us, because I... So is so speculative fiction is the higher category that, that breaks down into science fiction and fantasy, or what, what well, is the... Yeah, I think spe- speculative fiction is kind of the, the, you know, the term for people who don't want to admit that they're reading science fiction or fantasy <laughs> novels. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, but spe- yeah, speculative fiction could be, could be either really. It could be science fiction. It could be more of a sort of fantastical uh, approach, um, like Jeff Vandermeer's novels. I don't know if you've you've read those at all. No. Um, those are sort of to me a very sort of strange melding of, of fantasy and science fiction um yeah i guess spec- so calling it speculative fiction maybe sort of broadens things as well because well, well, yeah. but why is the lord of the rings different from the left hand of darkness right okay um and you know i i ask because i don't know no, yeah not well the the fantasy i guess there's sort of tropes that you apply to fantasy uh, that you don't necessarily apply to science fiction, right? So you've got the, you know, the journey of the hero, and um, Lord of the Rings is high fantasies. So you've got elves and dwarves, and you know, you've got these like other races. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I guess maybe the main difference, I could I could be wrong in this. I'd I'd have to think about it a bit. But for me, I think the main difference between science fiction and and fantasy are the. Um, Science fiction does have an aspect of the sort of science and technology, mm-hmm. uh, space travel, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, other worlds. Whereas science fiction is usually set on, or fantasy is is usually set on in, on one world, um, and yeah, and usually you've got this hero that's got this journey, and it's usually sort of um, the time period is also different, sort of usually medieval sort of time period that's that it's set in. Mm-hmm. And with that thought, I'll, I'll throw out um, kind of the, the, the distinction that Ursula makes, again, in this really fine introduction, um, setting apart science fiction from, from uh, mainstream forms of fiction. She says, what sets it apart from the older forms of fiction, I suppose meaning like, uh, you know, Faulkner or, or Hemingway or someone, seems to be the use of new metaphors drawn from certain great uh, dominance of our contemporary life, science, as you're alluding to all the sciences and technology and the relativistic and the historical outlook among them. Uh, space travel is one of these metaphors, um, et cetera, that, that kind of thing. But here's, and, and you remind me of my own general or previous objection to science fiction is you use the word trope. And so th- this is a, a whole other podcast, but genre fiction Readers turn to genre fiction because they expect certain tropes, right? This is part of the satisfaction. The detective novel, 
has certain expectations that one must meet. And then I suppose a real artist um, can then play with within those tropes. But I, I think for a lot of people who resist genre fiction, I think it's the feeling that the tropes in and of themselves become the core of it. And, you know, literary fiction, uh, every, you know, this doesn't happen, but theoretically, every book is started as a piece of art, meaning it could go anywhere. Now, one of my criticisms of current literary fiction is that literary fiction, meaning, I'm getting a stereotype here, but, you know, the Brooklyn writer uh, writing about... <clears throat> 20-something folks trying to, you know, immerse themselves in the world in, the tw in, in their 20s, that this has become its own genre with its own tropes. And in my mind, you know, extremely boring. So um, I think one of the things that's actually exciting about looking at science fiction for me is, for me, it's an unexplored, I, I don't know where these books go. And I actually find it, you know, really exciting and I, I think for those who are feeling a little bit tired of literary fiction and a bit exhausted, mm -hmm. you know, this is a really nice way to uh, kind of surprise yourself as a reader, um, yeah. which, is, which is good always. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. but yeah. Well, uh, in her introduction, um, she also kind of points out that a lot of people see science fiction as this... Um, almost a way of foretelling the future, right? And how you can sort of, um, you can get caught up in the idea that that writers of science fiction are trying to predict the future. Yeah. Where in fact, a as you mentioned earlier, what she's really trying to do is sort of throw a line to the, to the present and, and sort of explore things that people are struggling with in the present. And in... Particularly with that, it, it makes you understand why, um, and I think you may know a bit about this. I know Roman, um, this is something he could talk quite a bit about, is particularly in communist uh, Eastern Europe, Russian society, communist, um, or the Soviet Union, um, science fiction really offered those writers living in a totalitarian environment a way to really make points about the current system in a way that wasn't threatening to the censors or to the powers that be. And I think the, the Strugatsky brothers with uh, Doom City is an example. Although my understanding is it that had to circulate in a Samsidat version and an underground mimeograph version for some time um, for fear of even, even that, even you know something so different, so taken out of context would still might mm -hmm. catch the, uh, yeah, well, the ire of censors. Yeah, I think a lot of the... Yeah, I think I think there was a, there was an idea that they might be, you know, people were um, not sure whether they were criticizing the you know the, the Soviet regime or not. They couldn't quite make it the tale of this novel. <laughs> right, exactly. So you know, it, it might better be, be better yeah. be safe and just you know yeah, sen censor it. <laughs> it's possible this is subversive, so maybe we'll just censor it just in case, right? <laughs> um, but but my understanding is, um, I think from reading the introduction to that book that. Um, when it uh, eventually went on sale, I think in the, the early '90s, just before the Soviet Union crumbled, that it was like a, you know, a rock star event. That, you know, um, the freedom that, you know, uncensored literature, literature that that tried to question things. It was, it's hard to imagine in a Western society, you know, people lining up. There's a new novel that you know um, 
questions the reality of our political system. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think people have a fascination with, with banned books, right? Maybe that's the reason why uh, Catcher in the Rye is so popular. I, I can't think of any other reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and um, right, yes. So, so you don't like J.D. Salinger? I'm, I'm not a massive fan of The Catcher in the Rye, yeah. And honestly, I haven't read any of his other books, which were just recently published, right? Yeah, so... Well, right. There's a there was an entire treasure trove of his manuscripts that um, has been brought to the light. But but for the longest time, right, you could there was the Catcher in the Rye, and then there's a a wonderful collection of short stories I think called Nine Stories, okay, yeah, which, which are I read. which are amazing. I think they were published uh, in the New Yorker back in the day and, and got people very excited. But I I would also recommend there's a novel called um, Franny and Zoe, which I think is his only other novel, okay. and. Roman and I have talked a lot about Salinger, and I and I think, I don't know, the control and the precision of of the prose is what mm-hmm. there's there's. I I feel like there's no uh, uh, wrong word in there. There's no mistakes. Sure. Um, and you know, I mean, I I can understand not liking the Catcher in the Rye. It, yeah. Maybe it appeals to a certain time yeah. when you're a teenager. Probably, and I think I read it. Um... You know, but I think by the time I had read it, I'd, I'd, I'd read a bunch of other sort of similar stories that might have been riffing on it, and so it didn't seem that original to me at the time. But it might be because, you know, totally. Yeah, and and I think on Netflix there's a really great documentary called Searching for Salinger, and it because mm. he was you know a hermit most of his life and blah blah blah. Um, so I think before we dive into the book, just one quick thing um, that that Hester and I were talking about before we started recording, and that is the other, I think, roadblock for people, um, particularly perhaps for women, is that science fiction is for boys, that this is a man's thing, or maybe even a teenage boy thing. Now, of, cur- of course, Ursula, uh, you know, has, has uh, can disavow that by her life and work, but um, what about women in science fiction, either as readers or, or as writers? And I know that you're have a special reading project this year of reading only female writers. And, and you mentioned kind of offhand, like, there's a ton of female science fiction writers. Yeah, there. once you start looking for them, they're all over the place. I think that there is maybe a little bit of that, you know, women have been marginalized in, in science fiction. But when you when you really go back and look for them, they're, they're actually plenty, right? They're all over the place. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been a great year. I haven't only read science fiction. I've, I've kind of try, tried to broaden my horizons and read all sorts of different uh, female authors but but yeah I've definitely there were some really really good books that I, I mean read. if one or two female science fiction writers that you would just so, throw out there yeah so Cameron Hurley is is the one that I definitely recommend probably it, it's she wrote uh, the book is called The Stars Are Legion and it is this really crazy fascinating uh, science fiction novel it's set on a on a group of decaying um, organic planets so there's these living or like planet spaceships right so there's these like living spaceships that and the book is the book only has uh, female characters there are no men in this universe at all okay right uh, one of my friends who read it calls it uh, lesbians in space <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah it's just this fa- fantastic really sort of visceral um, unflinching sort of feminist science fiction novel. It's it's really fantastic. So I definitely recommend that. Um, 
Another one I read is called The Power. I think it's uh, Naomi Alderman is the author. And uh, also sort of a feminist science fiction novel. Um, in that novel, a woman, and it's set in sort of, I want to say present day, but I guess it's not really true. It's set in the future, looking back um, at a time in the present where um, women evolve this ability to, to shock people. Um, specifically men, right? So they, they have they develop this organ that gives them this electrical shock, like an eel. Okay. Um, and that upsets the whole balance of power. Okay. Um, and so it's set in the future, this guy is writing this sort of... Um, similar to Left Hand of Darkness, I guess. He's writing this report, like this historical sort of story of, of how women became this sort of, you know, powerful... <laughs> you know, this all-powerful mm -hmm. race, I guess. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah, it was it was really it was really cool. And is is there is there like any way to generalize about like after reading only female writers for you know twelve months now? Is there something that just jumps out about uh, characteristics of these books that that make them any different? Or you know, in, in here's here's the thing that I'm I've been thinking about is that. A project like your um, you're doing, obviously, we need to read women writers because of the um, the blatant discrimination and the fact that they've been you know left out of the publishing world mm -hmm. since time immemorial. So so there's almost a a political act in a way yeah. by publishing and in reading female writers, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. But the other part and in, in that that I'm curious about is. Are female writers different? Is it worth reading female writers specifically because they offer something different? Or are there no differences between men and women writers? There simply has just been a discrimination within publishing. And therefore, we will we'll arrive at a point where that, that distinction will be kind of irrelevant. You'll just read Helen DeWitt or you'll read whatever, Jane Austen, and you'll read Jonathan Franzen, and you won't really think much about the gender. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of hope we're there already. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a difficult question. I, I, um, I hope that, they were, that we're, there, we're there already, right? And we don't care that much about whether it's a female or male writer, and it's just the, the quality of the writing that sort of rises to the top. Um, that's kind of what I found this year is, you know, I've, I've just reading female authors, every single book I read was fantastic, right? But I did kind of seek out books that people were talking about that, you know, there was a buzz about them. And um, yeah, I think the science fiction in particular, maybe there isn't quite an equality there yet, right? Maybe, maybe on the literature side, it's a bit different, mm -hmm. but yeah. I mean, I don't know. It, it was interesting reading it with, with that frame of mind, though. You know, I'm only reading female authors and what does separate them. I don't think there really was anything that... I mean, ex ex except for the very sort of overtly feminist novels. Yeah. Um, I don't think there was really anything that separated them. They're, they're just... They're all just extremely well-written novels. Right? I read Bel Canto this year for the first time. Um, uh, what else did I read? I've kind of gone blank. <laughs> um, yes. I read a Jennifer Egan novel called The yeah. Keep that was really good. Um, yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I'd read Welcome to the Goon Squad. I, I have to admit, I didn't, 
care for that book as much as I wanted to. I know the the, the there was a lot of build up to mm-hmm. particularly that book, kind yeah. of, and I liked it in a certain way because it was about rock and roll, and I do like sure. rock and roll novels, but. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I knew nothing about it before I read that book, so um, I think I enjoyed it. Maybe because I didn't hear all the build up and stuff, and I was just like, "Oh, this is great!" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was really easy to read, and it, yeah, it was just a fun, just a fun book. Yeah, yeah. So, the left hand of darkness. Um, you know, I'll 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 try to give a simplistic uh, plot summary here, just to kind of get us going, um, and jump in if if. Um, I mischaracterize anything because I think this is one of the other challenges to coming to science fiction without the background is the orientation that's required in that in these new worlds is is more extensive than a realistic novel contemporary you know sort of novel so you you really it's like you know landing uh, we were just in Europe recently uh, and we were in uh, Barcelona in Spain and you know every time you you kind of arrive in a new city, you have to kind of go, holy shit, you know, uh, the, the language, all this kind of stuff. So I think that can be challenging. But um, essentially what we have is we have a representative from um, from Earth, or is he a representative of a kind of um, stellar alliance? Yeah, more of a, yeah, more of a stellar alliance, yeah, called the Ecumen. Yes, right? yeah. exactly. And so he um, is, a, is an envoy. And so he lands, or he's on the planet of, of Gethin. And Gethin has, like Earth, various nation states. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in uh, Carhide, and he's by himself, and he's essentially his purpose uh, is to try to bring these nations into this ecumen alliance. And so the word itself makes me think of ecumenical, which is when it's mostly with within various Christian churches, they try, you know, Catholics to Methodists, Methodists to Evangelicals, trying to not necessarily convert each other, but create avenues of conversation or whatever. But I suppose in in this case, um, this envoy is trying to get these nations to join the Ecumen Stellar Alliance. Um, And he is from Earth, specifically. He's He's an Earthling. Um, and Earth, at this point in time, has kind of evolved beyond our current state of uh, war, strife, <laughs> greed, um, this kind of thing. So, so he finds himself in Carhide, and Carhide is somewhat of a suspicious culture, um, resistant to change. They have a rivalry with a, uh, another nation state called... Orgarain, yes. And Orgarain is a bit more like a police state, although that isn't apparent initially, I yeah. think, in a certain sense. But they they more tightly control information. They have gulag style. Yeah, so commensals or something is what they call them. Yeah. yeah so they have some kind of secret police, the yes. surf or yeah, the sarf. Right. Yeah. So, um, so we kind of land in Carhide and we um, are with... This earthling, his name is Genli I, and he is an envoy, specifically called an inspector, is that, or an so investigator? I, I think the investigators came before him. Okay. Yeah, so they were, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think the novel mentions four investigators landed before. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting. They're, they're very 
they don't act the way earthlings would act today. I mean, think of how, speaking of Spain, think of how they entered the new world um, with swords and, and greed and, and that kind of thing. So they actually, these, these envoys come to these planets one at a time because they said one is a curiosity, one can promote question, any more than one is an invasion. So they're very sensitive to try to evangelize uh, through conversation, through through convincing, and ultimately, a planet that joins the ecumen benefits from mind speech, with which the Earthlings have, and um, enlightened technology. Mm-hmm. There's actually um, a device, a communication device. It almost reminds me of Dropbox or something. You can, you can say something and then simultaneously uh, in another galaxy um, there's communication. But so I'm not sure how further to go along this track. Um, That's kind of the orientation. Um, Anything else to kind of set people up? I mean, there's the format of the novel is, um, I I don't know, how, how would you sort of well, it's written almost as a report, really. So, right, so Jenny I is looking back at his time on Gethin, and he's, um, I get he's obviously been keeping a journal or something while he's while he's been going through all of these experiences, and so it's this curated report, right? He's included. It's mostly a first person narrative um, on Jenny I's side, but then it's interspersed with little, sort of, you know mystical mythological stories uh from the sort of gethin um religions and uh there's also a fair amount of narrative from estraven who is the you know a really good who a very important character in the novel i guess um uh, especially as the in the later parts of the novel um yeah so it's really written as a report and it's it's interesting there because even the parts that are not narrated by Jen Lee, he's included, right? So there's this, yeah, it's an interesting aspect to the way she's. Yeah, and and I think um, one of maybe one of the ways to start talking about the book is, um, and let's see if I've got my my reference here correct, is at some point they ask Jen Lee, I, you know, again, you know, what is the what is this ecumen council or this alliance? You know, what, what is sort of the, um, the goal of it? And he says that, um, let's see if I can get it correct here, that it is, the purpose of it is to reunify the mystical with the political. Mm. And so that got me thinking about, is this a political book? Because it starts to get into the rivalry between Olgarain yeah, and Carhide, yeah. um, with the one disclaimer that uh, Genli I makes a statement that um, they have strife, they have murder, they have all the conflicts we're familiar with, but war is not an option for them. They they do not have the ability somehow to actually mobilize for war. It's almost like a kind of inertia or lethargy right. that that prevents them from going to that step. Um, But there is a rivalry. There's a lot of the things that we might even um, look familiar between, say, the U.S. and China right now, or even the U.S. and Russia. You have these, or it actually made me think of um, the rivalry between Athens and Sparta, which is sort of the classic 
you know, tension between nation states. But it got me thinking, is this a political book? Is this a book about gender? Because there's a whole uh, gender aspect to this, and, and I think that's worth mentioning. So, so on the planet of Gethin, there are, there are no gender as we know them. So there isn't male and female. And so this envoy is considered to be a pervert because he is um, male. So he specifically has a, a, a male gender and he has male sexual organs that are permanent. Mm-hmm. And he is in a permanent state of Kemmer. Mm-hmm. And on that island, Kemmer is essentially the uh, breeding time or the... Um, yeah, that yeah, the sort of a, the, yeah, that sort of a sexual cycle, I guess. Yeah, um, and so so gender is a big part of this book, but not necessarily gender the way we think of it today. So gender in our current conversation is mostly, uh, or involves uh, fluidity of gender. I think um, awareness about uh, transgender. Um, so what? What is the gender, or what is the sexuality of the people of Gethin? Yeah, uh, so you, I want to go back and talk a little bit about the war because um, I think that a lot of I think that so Ursula Gwen is on record saying that the book is not about gender, that that is a theme of the novel, but that the real theme in the novel is about um, loyalty and friendship and uh, trust. Um, and I mean, we can talk more about that later, but. Gender certainly seems to affect everything on the planet, right? So, um, yeah, I'm looking for the quote. Uh, the, the, there is a, I think it's chapter seven in the novel, is uh, an, inv- an investigator's report. So these investigators that came before Gemini report on sort of different aspects of the civilization that they find. And um, chapter seven is about sort of the sex on Gethin, right? And how it sort of affects everything, right? The culture, um, war, politics, everything is sort of affected by gender, obviously, right? Um, and yeah, let me let me try to find a quote because it is really interesting. Um, yeah, he says, "There's no division of humanity into strong and weak, uh, or humanity." Sorry, uh, let me let me try that again. Uh, there's no division of humanity into strong and weak halves. Protective, protected. Dominant, submissive. Owner, chattel. Active, passive. In fact, the whole tendency to dualism that pervades human thinking may be found to be lessened or changed on winter. So, yeah, there's this idea that because there isn't that sort of discourse of power that we're used to as, as humans, right, um, that, might, that might be a reason why there hasn't been war. There's no... You know, it's it's just that they they don't have a concept of that, right? Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Yes, and and I, I I suppose the part that was difficult for me to um, totally get my head around, um, and I suppose it shows my own um, immersion in our reality, is so during this sexual cycle, um, kemering, as they would say, um, all all Gethins are able to assume a female or a male form. And I, I think it's unpredetermined. Yeah, they don't have control over it. Yeah. And um, so either anyone within the coupling can become pregnant as well. So um, so the king, for example, in uh, 
Carhide becomes uh, pregnant. So again, in our way of thinking, you know, the king is pregnant. It's 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 odd. I mean, obviously, yeah. we we've had um, pregnant queens in Earth's history, but um, it's really a clever way to to talk about what she wants to talk about, um, and also it really allows it, it allows you to think about. Um, in American society, sexuality is repressed. And I think that's a broad sort of uh, statement. But, um, you know, in going to Europe, or I have some familiarity with Japan, in Japan, sexuality is not repressed, but it's private, which I think is somewhat of a difference. I think the Japanese, for example, have more of a comfortableness with their body and sexuality, where here it's it's sort of tamped down. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting to think about Sexuality, because we don't have a particular cycle as the people in Gethin do, sexuality is always with us. And there's actually some some passages in the book where the inhabitants really struggle to get to understand this envoy. They're like, so so you can be sexual all the time, anytime, and they they see it as a horrible burden in a way, mm-hmm. because as soon as they go into their kemmering sexual period, right, they can't work. And, and it's the most awful suffering for them to not have a sexual outlet during this, whatever, five-week cycle. Like, it isn't simply just, you know, uh, lack of a romantic partner. It's almost like starving to death yeah. or something. So it's interesting to think about, in some ways, we have our desires, uh, but we're not really allowed to devote any time for them, uh, I think, in the U.S. So I think there's... There's something to be said about thinking about this model that, that Ursula Gwynn has kind of proposed here. It, mm-hmm. it, it certainly made me think about things. Yeah, and Jen Lee really struggles with that as well at first, right? Like, he, he talks about how, um, especially early in the novel, he's trying to force genders on people he's talking yeah. to, right? Yeah. And they'll seem to have a lot of male characteristics, and then right. suddenly they'll do something almost feminine, and he'll, he'll like, switch his whole perspective, right. and he has to keep switching it back and forth. Uh, I think he talks in one part about the landlady um, in in Carhide and how, um, you know, he, he sort of, just because of the way this this uh, landlady um, acts, um, he, he sort of forced a gender on, on her. And then, you know, in, in, on the other, on the other hand, he'll, they'll, the person will do something very masculine and it'll, it'll really, he'll really struggle with it. Yeah, so, yeah, he's struggling with it just as much as we are, I think, as we're reading it. Yeah, and and I think the novel is really timely in a way because this is actually going on in in our society in a, in a, in a certain way, too. I think um, we were actually together uh, with your wife at a reading at Reed College. There was a, um, it was actually Tin House Magazine had their um, kind of summer reading series. They have workshops and so forth. And um, Reed College is a very progressive college for those who aren't aware here in Portland. Um, maybe one of the most progressive in the United States. And I actually had my first um, encounter with a, a kind of non-gender uh, restroom um, at Reed College. And so I suppose like some of the characters in this novel who have to confront something that they haven't really thought much about mm-hmm. and was just unconscious, I suddenly had to interesting, a bathroom that uh, both men and women can use together, and that um, it throws you a bit. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, not with any judgment, but just simply like, wow, that is such a model that I never thought would ever be questioned at all. So um, so the envoy uh, is faced with these things and he's also um, eliciting that in in, uh, the inhabitants Mm -hmm. um, of Gethin. So but yeah, you. You alluded to the fact that it's maybe it's it's a book about relationships, trust, love. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the part about this book that I'm really want to think more about, and that is the first half of the book, as you suggested, it goes back and forth between first person narratives of the envoy from Earth, and then also uh, Lord Estrevin, who is the Prime Minister of Carhide in a, in a very important political maneuvering person. Mm -hmm. And then interspersed with that, there are lots of uh, uh, origin stories of their religion, etc., myths, tales. But then the second half of the book is very, very focused, and it involves those two characters. Um, There's been a lot of uh, twists and turns in the plot, but eventually they are on the run, is the best way of putting it. And they need to escape from the authorities, and they have to go through this tundra expanse. And it takes them almost three months mm-hmm. to, to go through. They have skis, and they have like a sled. Um, and so they're fleeing for their life. It's, it's like being in the North Pole. And suddenly, the book becomes very, very focused on the relationship between these two characters. And they're, you know, they're in a tent uh, at night. It's freezing. Um, and... She makes the decision as a writer to devote, like I said, endless chapters to what in some ways could have been summarized very quickly. And so they escaped from the authorities and they tried to make it for the border and, you know, they went through a bunch of challenges. But she chose to really, really draw this out, descriptions of the landscape. Um, and for a while I was enjoying it, but, but also thinking, why? Why suddenly... Um, when I was given tons of information in short, pithy chapters and had to absorb a lot of background, suddenly she puts me in the tundra with these two characters. And I, as I thought about it and as thinking about what you just said, that, I mean, they fell in love, maybe. Because um, the, the, book, the book does end with, it's hard not to give things away, but um, the envoy ends up seeking the family uh, of, of the Lord, Mm-hmm. Um, and expresses, I don't know. Um, yeah. It, so to me, it's not really a romantic relationship. Um, to me, it is just a very strong uh, friendship. There is a moment in, so there is a moment in the tents over, over, you know, over the frozen wastes in in the three months that they're on the ice, where Estrovan does come into Kema, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there is there is sort of a, a moment of sort of sexual tension there. Yep. But I think they both sort of resolve not to go that route. Um, and it, yeah, it is such an interesting sort of tender part of the novel. It's one of my favorite sections of the whole novel. Um, yeah, and it, it's just kind of a... They make this choice not not to sort of go down that sort of romantic route. Um, and I'm trying to remember how it's actually put in the novel, but it, it, yeah, I just love, I just love that moment, and and in fact, the last half of the novel is just for me, just my, you know, it's it's great. Yeah, I, I could read that last half of the novel just over and over again. <laughs> yes, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other 
you know, w one of the things I want to throw to go in a slightly different direction, just because I, it doesn't totally fit into that strain of the conversation, but mm -hmm. it's just so, this is also a funny book. It is, yeah. She has a sense of humor, mm -hmm. and I, I think that should be pointed out. And I, there, there's a, a passage earlier in the book where we learn about a custom, I think, in Carhide about um, prophecy, basically. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, a question, you go to the foretellers. And these are people who are set aside, almost like um, priests in a way, who um, you, you, in a very formal way, you, you ask them a question. Um, and then they go into kind of these trance-like states to try to find the answer. Um, but you also have to be respectful of the fact that if you ask a question <laughs> that they're not able to answer, you could almost destroy them in a sense. And so um, to kind of uh, give some background to this, to the, to the, uh, the character, um, he's told that be very, very careful what you ask. And this is the envoy. The envoy approaches them because he wants to know, will Gethin eventually join the Interstellar Alliance? And um, he, is, he finds that um, he gets sort of coached up on how to approach them. And I think this is where her sense of humor uh, kind of comes out. So he's, he's told, you know, again, if you ask a question that's impossible to answer, you can wreck them. This is literally what he says. And this advisor recounts uh, a question that was asked, uh, you know, previously. And he, he tells uh, Genliai, he says, do you know the story of the Lord of Shorth? who forced the foretellers of Asin Fastness, these are the foretellers, the prophets, to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? Well, it was a couple of thousand years ago, and the foretellers stayed in the darkness for six days and nights, right, trying to figure this out. At the end, and this actually uh, gets to the, the makeup of the foretellers, which is, I think, very funny. So the foretellers are made up of uh, celibates, who are catatonic, uh, zanies, and perverts. And so um, when they were asked what is the meaning of life, they couldn't figure it out. And at the end, all the celibates were catatonic, the zanies were dead, and the perverts clubbed the Lord of Shorth to death with a stone and the weaver. He was a man named Mesh. And, and I think Mesh also is the god of Gethin. I think so, in, yeah. Insert of the mythology. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think she's also like, winking at the reader and saying don't look at science fiction for the meaning of life like you're not going to get it from this book i think if you're or if you look to any author to see if you can get it and she loses this in the answer if there was a specific if she could tell you what everything meant there'd be no reason to write a book mm -hmm. <laughs> um and so i think it's a good lesson for all of us that you know you're not going to walk away with pat answers um mm -hmm. writers deal with themes they explore things that are of interest to them. And by thinking deeply and carefully and being artists, I think they can shine little bits of light here and there on how we live. Um, and Roman and I have talked about this, but I, I don't believe that literature makes anybody better or worse. Um, many of the Nazis were quite literate people. Um, Joseph Goebbels, he was the minister of propaganda, 
was an, uh, an English major. He was a literature major. And he wanted to be a playwright. So I think we need to drop that idea. Um, but I think the mystery of like how you live, what the hell is this life? I think that literature, it, it, it can open some vistas. Again, it does not make you morally better. I, I feel strongly about that, and I've, I've written about that. Um, so I don't know. So there's yeah. humor. Uh, there's also um, some guidance there in the sense of, like, you're not going to find answers from me. So, so, and again, this is a question that goes beyond this book, beyond science fiction. Why the hell do we read this stuff? <laughs> and maybe... Maybe this is really what the Feeling Bookish podcast is about. Why are we obsessed with these with these books? Yeah, um, and I don't know the answer. Yeah, I mean, even reading this book for the second time, I still have so many questions about it. You know, there are still so many things that just I feel like I need to go back and read it again <laughs> and maybe glean a little. It's it's crazy how this is a relatively short novel, yeah. and she's crammed so much into it. Um, and really into the first two-thirds of the novel, because as you said, the last sort of half or third of the novel is spent on the ice. Um, and so she's crammed all of this religion and politics and um, these really... There is a lot of... Like, so Jenny I <clears throat> is trying to get the carhide to join the ecumen. Yep. He fails. Yes. And blames it really on Estraven, right? There's a, lot, there's a sort of lack of trust there in the beginning of the novel which I think comes a lot from gender, right? He kind of describes how he finds it difficult to trust uh, uh, Gethanians because because of this sort of fluid gender mm-hmm. issue. Um, but yeah, there, there is a lot of sort of political stuff that happens there where he goes off to Augurain and then he gets sent to this prison. And, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's just a very, very deep novel with a lot of sort of... There's a lot of sort of political intrigue going on. Um, and, yeah, there's so much to unpack, you know? Yeah, and I, and I think you, you really nailed it. Um, the the lack of trust that the envoy has in Lord Estrevin. And the artistry of Ursula K. Le Guin is she does not let us see the goodness of Lord Estrevin until you know the the novel almost entirely plays out so we we like Enli I are suspicious earthlings um, and, it, and I couldn't quite figure out the motivation uh, for what he did what he did until you know you're literally told later in the book and and he's it it sort of pointed out that it you can be politically astute and you can be sophisticated at working your way in a bureaucracy and that's not necessarily evil if if your intentions are to do something very good. Um, so he he wasn't as um, Machiavellian as he seemed, mm-hmm. and and so yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and um, <laughs> I had a point, and I've kind of lost it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, yeah, well, you asked why we why we read these novels, right? And and I think for me, it is about answering these questions and, and thinking about things. It is it's just it is a thought experiment, right? Like really, it is. No matter what novel you're reading, um, and I just love I love asking those questions and 
trying to figure out answers for them, even if I can't always figure the answers out. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, there's also just, you know, when you read a book that this good and um, a book that by now is almost 50 years old, there's also some really odd, like I said, there's technology that seems to almost predict like, you know, Dropbox or, you know, instantaneous document sharing or, yeah, you know, Ansible. yeah, the Ansible, exactly. Um, and then there's also some allusions to um, uh, other planets who had ruined their their planet um, by abusing the environment. And, um, you know, climate change is, you know, obviously front and center or should be. And so um, I know there was thought of climate change in, in the late 60s. I think it was more about um, the planet getting colder. But really, it's the same point, right, that, that you know, things in the environment are changing here. Um, so, you know, we could go on and on and on. Um, we're kind of coming to the end here. Um, I'm assuming you've read more of her books. Yes. Yeah. And so... So somebody who's jazzed about this book, um, I know she has a, a you know, a massive um, body of work, but where else should you go after this? If, if we're just talking about, assuming that we don't have time to read all the books, what are two other classics that should be read? So I think, um, in my opinion, The Dispossessed is another novel which is really on par with this one. This is one of my favorite novels, so, but, but yeah, The Dispossessed comes pretty close. Um, and I won't say too much about the story, but that's definitely another one to look into. And then um, The Lathe of Heaven is a novella that she wrote. So it's, it's really approachable, very short and very different. And that's really about the nature of dreaming. It's, it's a very cool novel. I, I would, uh, or novella, I, I would definitely recommend the two of them. Nice. And, and again, I, I hesitate to recommend too many science fiction novels because I haven't read a lot. But I think it's safe to say that, um, you know, those who want high art in their science fiction, Philip K. Dick is someone that they should absolutely read. Um, a Scanner Darkly is a fantastic novel. Um, and um, for those who kind of like history, military buffs like myself, I believe it's The Man in the High Castle, which is also now a, uh, a series on Amazon, which I have, I have not really explored yet. Um, but it imagines a scenario where um, the Axis win World War II, and uh, Japan and Germany occupy the United States, and they actually split it in half at the Mississippi River, Yeah, I believe. And I think she alludes to that in the introduction, doesn't she, the, the Philip K. Dick novel? Does she really? I, I think she does, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. What, wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of it. Um, again, Roman will be back uh, on our next episode, and, you know, really appreciate Heston uh, kind of sitting in and um i want to put out an open invitation that um we'd love to have you as a semi-regular sure. uh contributor I, f I feel like you've just been doing this for <laughs> for years um well, thanks for having me <laughs> yeah no it's a pleasure and so just remind uh folks that our next podcast is going to be on a monster that's getting a lot of attention um online it's Uwe Johnson the German writer and it's the novel anniversaries and so it's a it's a, a doorstopper of a novel there's two volumes and I know that some of the folks listening have been already started reading it so we're going to um, start plowing ahead towards that so perhaps mid-January so uh, look for the recording um, and again uh, 
You can follow Roman on Twitter, at um, ZenJew. My Twitter is at RobertFay1. And Heston, are there any social channels that you want to throw out there, or are you just going to remain a, a man of mystery? I think I'll remain a man of mystery for now because I don't really do a lot of social networking stuff, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> okay, the, the man is just too busy, like, reading, you know. Yeah, reading. Reading all the time, you know, <laughs> yeah. very old school. Um, well, that's about it. And, you know, Heston, I know you're about to take a vacation to uh, the South Pacific and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Enjoy. Be yeah, safe. And um, please come back to the Feeling Bookish studio and, and talk books with us. Absolutely. Okay, man. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much.